This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Jeannie Venasco, author of the memoir, Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl. Most human beings do bad things, maybe not on the level of rape, but do things we're not proud of and hurt other people. And some of what goes into being a good person, I think, is a willingness to become a better person and to try harder. We'll hear more from Jeannie Venasco in a few minutes. First, I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. I've heard that it takes listeners seven times to hear a pitch before becoming members. So I invite you to beat the odds. If this is one through six, or if it's seven or more, please consider how valuable your patronage is to this podcast. Your support keeps the essential voices of writers sharing their craft and their work over the airwaves. Membership starts at just $6 a month and includes perks like extra cuts from the interviews that don't make the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and perhaps best of all, pitch-free, ad-free episodes every single week. You will receive your own link to an ad-free, pitch-free first draft feed that you can play wherever you listen to podcasts. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and join the First Draft family. Every month you get a newsletter and at random extra thank you gifts from me. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. I have an archive of more than 230 episodes, and I hope that from them you have learned something about craft and heard new and interesting perspectives about the world we live in and our human journey. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, Reminder. Membership matters. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. And I also have a website now. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. Stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on other episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Jeannie Venasco, author of the memoirs, Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl, and The Glass Eye. Her writing has appeared in The Believer, The New York Times, Modern Love, NewYorker.com, and elsewhere. She lives in Baltimore and is an assistant professor of English at Towson University. Her memoir, Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl, chronicles her complex relationship with a man who raped her, someone she once considered a close friend during high school. In the memoir are interviews Jeannie Venasco has with Mark, the name she gave to her rapist in the book, and the text explores how rape has impacted his life as well as her own. We began the discussion with Jeannie sharing that she dedicated a short space in her first memoir, The Glass Eye, to this rape, but said there was more to say about the incident, which instigated things we didn't talk about when I was a girl. At the time also, though, I didn't really think of it as rape. And that's not something I really came to the conclusion of until I was writing 
this book and learn the FBI's revised definition of rape because for so long I thought, why am I so upset about this? Uh, he only used his fingers. Like I, I've experienced what later on with a different friend, uh, an experience where I have no trouble, I had no trouble at the time considering it rape. But this one, it just, it seemed, it was very confusing for me. And because of that confusion, I was interested. And because of some of the moral ambiguity, because I thought of him as such a good person and a close friend, I was interested in exploring this. Whereas I wouldn't, I don't think I'll ever write about the rape I experienced in my 20s because I don't have, I don't feel confusion about that experience. I don't feel any confusion about that friendship. I don't think it was a real friendship. And I, I, I don't know, but this situation, I had been best friends with, I call Mark in the book. I'd been best friends with him for five years. And so that felt like such a huge betrayal. So because I didn't know what to call it, because it felt serious, because I was interested in writing about it for so long, but hadn't really thought it warranted or it deserved a book length exploration, for those reasons, I thought, okay, maybe it does deserve a book-length exploration because I, I feel so much confusion about it. At the heart of this memoir is the fact that when you were 19, you had already been out of high school, but you were home for a high school party. And this friend of yours, who you call Mark, who you had been very close to through all of high school, and he always had feelings for you, but you had another boyfriend and you were clear that you didn't want to be with him. He sort of lacked a certain kind of motivation that you were looking for an ambition, but you were still really good friends and you were at a party and you got drunk for the first time and he was drunk as well. And he carried you down to the basement purposefully um, and violated you. He, he masturbated over you. He, fingered you, which is now considered rape. It wasn't then. And you wanted to write about this, but you said that you didn't want to write another story about another sexual assault. So can you talk about the format of the book? And if I had just characterized anything incorrectly, please correct me. No, no, you characterized it perfectly. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I felt so conflicted about this idea of uh, how do I write about this in a new way? And why do I think I have to write about it in a new way? And is that part of it? Is part of that just the capitalist forces at work within publishing where this fear that someone's going to say, well, we already have all of these books about this. Like, what's your angle? And I, I felt conflicted about the fact that I even had that concern. And so I thought, okay, why not write a book that includes my, my conflicted feelings about this? Why not acknowledge on the page these beliefs or ideas that I am really confused about and that I even feel bad for thinking? And so the book is, I mean, I, I often think about memoir as being not so much about 
the events, but about the reflection about the events, that that is really the plot of memoir. And so the tactic I took with this book is there is a a meta narrative running throughout where I'm just reflecting on how conflicted I feel about undertaking the project. And then when I, when I do contact him and interview him and he agrees to go on the record, I weave in my reflections about those conversations, breaking apart the transcript in um, in the chunks in which I transcribed them, and then having conversations with my female friends where they reflect on the transcripts and what he said and what I said, how I reacted. And so I think the the meta aspect of it came sort of naturally to me, but also seemed important because of just at the beginning, having this thought, like, can I write, like, what do I have to say about rape that hasn't been said before? And I feel bad about thinking that, that I even need to do that. I would never tell a student that or another writer that, or even think that of someone else, but why do I think it of myself? Uh, and that my story doesn't matter. And I, I just, I see that sort of logic happening among my students where they think, well, what, what do I have to say that's new or fresh about this particular trauma? And, um, and so I just, I wanted to acknowledge that because I think the reason that certainly a, a lot of, or certainly I turn to books or why I first fell in love with books is that you spend time with a personality, you, you, another person, a consciousness, like it's, it's the way to feel less alone. And so my hope with, um, including my complicated feelings about undertaking the project is that if there are other people out there who also feel conflicted, maybe it will help them feel less alone and realize that their story matters. So, so basically the conceit of the book, I mean, it sounds cheap in a way to say that because this was a big process you were going through was that you were going to get in touch with Mark, the person who perpetrated this assault on you and see if he was willing to talk. And he was, and you had many conversations, you met him in person and that transcript is in the book. Before you emailed him the first time, did you have any sense that he would or would not talk to you? I thought he would talk to me. I mean, obviously I wasn't sure. And the working title of the project was If He Says No, which was sort of problematic because it placed emphasis on him. But I I was wondering, like, okay, if he says no to this. I didn't think he would because I, I knew it. I remembered at the time him feeling bad, him calling me to apologize. So I thought he might talk to me. Certainly I, I hoped he would, but part of it was, I, I thought, okay, if he says no, will I do it anyway? And so I, it was a way of also reflecting on this idea of consent and the right to tell one's story and why do I even think I need his permission? I I never gave mine. And so I was interested either way in pursuing it, um, whether he said yes or no. And I felt uncomfortable about that. And I did wonder how would the book have been different if he had said no? And 
I think it probably would have, this is kind of veering away from the question you would ask, but I think it would have been a little bit more intellectualized. I would have reflected a little bit more on uh, the language surrounding sexual assault and the FBI's revised definition of rape. And it probably would have been a little bit more historical. Um, but because he said yes, and again, I wasn't too surprised he said yes, it allowed me to do some more, like to make him explain himself. I mean, I think that was part of it too. I, I thought, okay, if I can get him talking, then it will take the emphasis away from what I did or did not do to prevent or stop the assault, which is a natural reaction that some people have upon hearing a story of sexual assault. They think about what they might have done differently. And so I thought getting him on the record, making him explain himself, it puts the focus back on what he did. And so I'm, I mean, I'm glad he agreed. I, I wasn't too surprised, but uh, I think I would have done it either way. It just would have been a very different book. You mentioned that the FBI changed its definition. Mark assaulted me in 2003. And back then, according to the FBI's definition of rape, uh, which was the carnal knowledge of a female forcibly and against her will, Mark Hatton raped me. But then as of January 1st, 2013, however, according to the FBI, Mark had raped me. The new definition, penetration, no matter how slight, of the vagina or anus with any body part or object, or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without the consent of the victim. And so part of the tension of book is how the defini definition has changed, but the action remains the same. And early on in the book, I, I mentioned that I still feel uncomfortable calling it rape, even knowing the definition, the new definition. I understand that. And there's probably millions of women who are living in that maybe interstitial space because they're not sure themselves. What did writing this unpack for you or or what do you think you learned by by wrestling with this question of of language really and other people's language it's like the language of the law it's not the language of your heart and your mind right what helped me I mean therapy is has been so extraordinarily helpful uh, my therapist Adam had asked me when I told him that I still felt uncomfortable calling it rape. He had said, you know, not to be too graphic, but would you consider it more or less severe if he had used a dildo? And my immediate response was well, less severe. There's something about the fact that he put his fingers, not an object in me. And then I realized that all along, I judged the assault severity based on Mark's body, which part he used, and that I never judged the severity based on my body, which part he violated. And so Adam's question, my therapist's question, just helped me reconceptualize my understanding of the event and just this idea that, oh, because Mark only, like, quote, only used his fingers, it's not a big deal. And I just completely, I just, for whatever reason, hadn't thought about how 
well, my body, like the part of my body he violated, it would still be the same no matter what he used. Uh, and so I, I think therapy was instrumental in helping me think through a lot of this and understand that it, it was severe. Um, but I, I didn't, I think if, if, if my therapist had told me the, had told me what I, my, like, that I had been uh, focusing on Mark's body and not mine. I don't know if it, if the, my understanding of the situation would have felt as profound, but because my therapist proposed this as a question and I felt I came upon the realization myself, I think that was really helpful. And it, uh, I just find that questions. I mean, this is what happens in the classroom with writing is that instead of offering someone criticism, I think it's so much more helpful to offer them a question that will help them work through something. So early on, I would say it was that question that my therapist question that helped me reconceptualize a lot of this a lot the that night. So once you get into your conversations with Mark, most are over the internet. You said basically in the very beginning that in some way you wanted readers to like Mark. And in a lot of ways, you ended up often apologizing to him, whether it was out of maybe gratefulness that he was talking to you or just basically how females react in society. It was always on your mind, like who gets the authority to tell the story who has more power in these conversations? And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that push and pull and both writing it and living it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the reason I felt so conflicted about this experience is that Mark had been one of my best friends. And I, and I understood going into this how some potential readers may not become readers upon hearing the premise that it would anger them. The fact that I talked to Mark, that I talked to a perpetrator, gave a perpetrator a voice at all. And so I thought, okay, well, why am I doing this with Mark and not say um, it's in the book earlier on the high school teacher uh, who was very inappropriate with me and molested me. And then the um, friend later on who raped me, I'm like, why am I not interested in talking to them and a lot of that had to do with I had I still I kind of missed Mark and I felt uncomfortable acknowledging that but I I would think back to these fond memories of him and how they didn't seem to square with the Mark of that night who would rape me and so I wanted to reconstruct those memories both, both for my own understanding but for the reader for any readers out there who would be resistant to this project um, so that they would understand why I might miss him, why a, um, a victim or a survivor might still talk to the perpetrator to the, per because that's actually a very common experience, but you'll hear some people dismiss um, a victim, uh, a victim's, uh, quote, allegations because, oh, she still talked to him. So it must not be true. And so I 
one, by reconstructing some of those fond memories, I thought, okay, this might help some readers understand why I missed him and still sort like have, why I still felt some nostalgia for that friendship. But then as a writer, so initially when I was drafting this, there, the first part of the book was a bunch of just great memories of Mark and me in high school. And I realized as I, after talking with him and talking with my female friends who would kind of push back on the fact I felt I even needed to talk to him, I realized, okay, maybe, you know, I need to lift some of those fond memories and scatter them throughout the book to remind any readers that about why I'm doing this, about why I feel conflicted. And so um, I definitely felt uncomfortable making him out to be a potentially likable person. And other aspect of this, though, is that so many of the uh, men, and certainly I don't mean to argue that only men are committing sexual assault, um, I mean, regardless of gender identities, um, uh, they're perpetrators, regardless of gender identity. But with Mark, I mean, because he seemed like a nice guy, there are so many perpetrators out there who do seem like, you know, nice guys. And I think it's important for people to understand that the the boys or the men we trust most are capable of doing this. Um, so that was one another reason why I wanted to show his likable side. And certainly then after I talked to him and learned more about how his life had turned out, I felt bad for him where he's, you know, he, at the time, you know, 34 years old and said he had never had sex with anyone. He'd never been in a romantic relationship. He lived alone. Uh, he said he no longer, he didn't have any friends. He talked to his brother, uh, but it was just, it seemed like a very sad existence. Like I can't imagine a life without friends. And so that made him, I don't know about likable, but certainly some readers have told me they, upon learning how his life had turned out, they felt really bad for him. And then they felt bad for feeling bad for him. Uh, but I think a lot of these stories of sexual assault are very nuanced. Um, and it's why a lot of uh, sexual assault survivors don't report is because the guy is otherwise nice and they feel bad for him and so on and so on. So I, that was why I wanted to include show wanted to include Mark as a, as a likable show, show the likable side of him. You know, I think as a, as a reader, if you're coming super open-minded and you want to kind of base your opinion on the words on the page and what you make of them, it is really hard in this day and age not to give Mark some credit for being open. I mean, we don't see that in Supreme Court hearings. We don't see that with the president of the United States. We don't see it at Stanford. We don't see many young men or older men being willing to admit it and talk about it and feel remorse. And so I felt that it was just as complicated and I'm just the reader. And I'm just wondering, I know you faced a lot of 
challenges from other women who did feel like you shouldn't write this or would be upset if someone had some empathy for Mark. And I'm just wondering how how that's been. And yeah, it's weird to kind of read this and give him credit and then feel guilty for doing that. It's great for me to hear that response. I mean, I'm not... I'm not on social media. And then I I remove my email address from my personal site and then from my faculty page early on, shortly before the book came out, because I I did receive some hate mail and it was just too hard for me. And I was like, I'm, I'm checking out. I don't need this. And, and which is kind of sad because part of the thing, part of the, um, uh, publishing process I enjoyed most with the first book was hearing from readers later, like getting all these emails. That was so wonderful. And I'm sad I didn't really get that experience this time. But after getting a piece of hate mail early on, I just, I didn't think I could do it. And it was a reader, someone who hadn't read the book. And she said she hadn't read the book. And she just, she heard about the premise. Uh, and she said that she didn't need to read the book that what I was doing was terrible and I was, I was, would, this book would harm rape survivors. And I felt, I felt terrible. And and by the end of it though, it was kind of funny because she said, I hope you make a lot of money from this book. Uh, And I thought, wow, you do not understand publishing. Uh, Because really, if I was trying to make money from the book, I would not have written a formally experimental memoir layered with a meta narrative and sold it to an independent press based in Portland, Oregon. Like, I mean, I just, that, that was upsetting to me that someone would think I had done this to make money, but the allegation that I was, that this book would cause so much harm. I, I, I felt terrible and other, but, and it's hard because I had received early on after the advanced review copies went out, wonderful emails from booksellers and reviewers sent me beautiful emails about how they were so glad the book existed and they were glad to know someone else felt the same way they did, where they felt conflicted about their experiences with sexual assault and about still talking to the guy. And those emails meant so much to me. And I felt so old. I like printed them. (laughs) I like, felt silly printing emails, but they were really meaningful. And so then after getting that piece of hate mail, though, I thought I can't take another, uh, I can't take any more of it. Um, So I don't know, like the reactions when I talk to readers at events, um, people who come who've already read the book and want to chat afterward. So far, those have been wonderful. I mean, I was just at a $2 radio in Columbus. And afterward, a young guy came up to me and was been an, I think he was an undergrad and he had already read the book. And he said, Oh my gosh, I love your book. It meant so much to me. And I've been telling all my guy friends, they have to read this book so that we know how to be great allies to the women in our lives. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like you are, thank you. Like, that's so wonderful to hear. Um, because some of the response I've gotten um, about the book is I, I've heard people say like, all like young women need to read this book. And I think, okay, like, yes, I, I mean, I would love women to read the book, but also what about 
um, what about men? <laughs> uh, that's been odd for me to hear that, like it's being pitched as a book that um, women, especially young women should read when really I think, okay, no, young men should definitely read this book. Also, I don't want everyone to necessarily agree with me. I think it's fine if someone wants to push back. I mean, I'm interested in having that discussion and I, I would be interested in having that discussion in, in person with someone at an event. Um, I think it's hard though. It was really hard for me to hear someone say that they don't need to read the book to know that it's, it's terrible what I'm doing. You, you, you remember the negative in a way so much more sometimes than you, than you remember the positive. Do you want to say anything else about the fact that some readers felt like they did give Mark some credit for being able to come to the table and talk to you? Well, it's funny. I had, I did an interview a couple of weeks ago with someone, this is somewhat related. She had said, your partner, Chris, who's in the book, he's amazing. And I was like, yeah, Chris is great. Like he was so supportive. So he let you talk to Mark. I was like, well, yes, he treats me like an adult. Like <laughs> He didn't forbid me from talking to Mark. And, but she kept giving him so much credit. And sometimes I, I do think we do give men so much credit when that's the complicated aspect of it, right? Where we feel somewhat torn, like, oh, he's real. And Mark says it was the least he could do to talk to me. Um, but I did have that feeling like, oh, I'm so grateful because he didn't have to talk to me. And so I understand where some people would feel conflicted about giving Mark any credit um, because, you know, it's like seeing a dad with a stroller and everyone's like, wow, what a great dad. Whereas you don't do that when you see a woman with a stroller um, or most people don't. And so I, I think that's part of the um, that's part of the conflict where as feminists or like certainly I as a feminist, I, I don't want to necessarily give men credit for doing the bare minimum. Uh, and yet I did feel grateful to Mark because it gave me some closure in a way. I mean, not that I completely believe in closure, but by talking to me and affirming my memories of that night and even telling me some things I didn't remember that did not make Mark look good. Um, some things he remembered from that night that was it was just helpful for me because I think for so long I thought was did I just did I imagine that did it like that really happen uh and so yeah just him talking to me and being open and answering some really personal questions I mean I asked him like what sort of porn did you watch and um have did it portray consensual sex and you know stuff like that that he was willing to answer what I asked him. I, I, I mean, I, I appreciated that. So at the heart of your book and you, you ask it outright and it sort of blend, it, it sort of permeates the whole book is this question, is it possible to be a good person who commits a terrible act? I think you meditate on this a lot. And I'm wondering if you came to any conclusions about this. I think it's important that we all, I mean, most human beings do bad things, maybe not on the level of rape, but do things we're not proud of and hurt other people. And 
some of what goes into being a good person, I think, is a willingness to become a better person and to try harder. And I felt conflicted about Mark because he agreed to the project, which I appreciated, and he tried to be as honest as I think he could be, and maybe at that time I was ready to be. Um, and I, but I, I do wonder if. I think he's trying to be better. I'm not sure. I mean, the thing that was frustrating to me and the other question that I, I think I felt conflicted about in the book was like, what is, what is a good apology? Like what makes for a good apology? And, and when does that then warrant forgiveness? And so it's kind of tied up in that question of goodness because Mark you know, he apologized to me and he sort of made this known publicly by agreeing to the project. And yet I do change his name and I don't tell his parents, even though he knows and he knew I wanted him to tell that his parents knowing was important to me because I lost that relationship. And I think a good apology isn't just apologizing to the person you harmed, but also making it known to the people within the community who like it, it affected. And it certainly affected Mark's parents. Like, I, I mean, I was so close with his family and then I just disappeared from their lives. And so while I do think Mark is trying to be a better person, and I think that is what gets at this idea of being a good person, that you make a mistake and then you try to atone for what you did and then you just you try to be better. Um, I, I think what was missing from this for me, why I feel still confused about it, where like one day I might think, oh, yeah, OK, Mark, I, I forgive him. And another day I think, no, it's not quite there yet. I think it's because he still is. I'm still kind of protecting him. Um, I did tell him. We, we haven't kept in touch, but uh, I did email him to see if he had read the book. Uh, Tin House, my publisher, had sent him a copy of the book when it was done, and he, he hadn't yet. And I, I had emailed him saying, you know, I know it's going to be a hard book to read. And just so you know, I, you know, I did change your name, but I didn't change identifying details. So if your family reads this book, if your parents hear about it and read it, they'll immediately know it's you. And he wrote back saying something, it was something like, um, you know, that I, he's sure I he's like, I'm sure you are more than fair. And even if you weren't, I have no one to blame but myself. And um, he also said, you know, if his family reads it, so be it. And that meant a lot to me that was getting closer to him, I think, delivering a sufficient apology but uh, yeah, the idea of like what makes a good person, it's a very complicated one and um, one that a, a philosopher, you know, could better answer. But for me, I think the simplified version is just that you, you know, you are aware of the mistake you made, you try to atone for it, and then you try to be better. Uh, and I, I think that's what it comes down to. Can you talk a little bit about writing this? Um, it is, it's very internal. It's, it's very 
you know, you talked about the meta part where you're kind of talking about writing it. You're going to your friends after you have these discussions with Mark and unpacking some of the the moral ambiguities that you're experiencing or the thoughts you're experience uh, you're experiencing. What was it like to be immersed in this story in this way again for you? And then writing it and, and making sure you had the story and the words right. So there's the, you know, the actual act and explaining it and then the craft. There was a way in which I kicked into writer mode where I um, was able to distance myself from some of the emotions, which was helpful because I, I was thinking about, I started thinking about Mark as a character, you know, like, okay, there was the Mark there was the character I was friends with, and then there was the character who committed this act, and then there's the character afterward who doesn't seem like he would match the character of that night. Um, and so thinking about it on craft levels and breaking it apart and thinking about like why I might want to show particular scenes or might want to include a particular detail in one place as opposed to another, it helped me take control of the material and, and um and write about, I think, what would otherwise have been very difficult to write if I had just been writing out my feelings. And so I think by by connecting my feelings to the events and writing about both, it was it ultimately ended up being somewhat therapeutic. But I became, I definitely became obsessed with this project while writing it because I, I wrote it in about eight months. It was between January of 2018 and August of 2018. And looking back, I mean, after I wrote it, I think, wow, that was a weird thing to do. <laughs> like reach out to reach out to Mark and, and talk to him about all of this. I mean, it, it's so odd that to me now that I did that, whereas at the time, I think I just I saw this as my job. And so, of course, I'm going to talk to him. Of course, I'm going to ask him these uncomfortable questions of, of course, I'm going to um, uh reflect on that night. And so looking at it as my job, as opposed to something that I just wanted to do, that was really helpful. Because it was odd to me immediately after writing it or while writing it, people were like, wow, you're so brave. This is so brave. And it's like, really? I don't know. Is it brave? I mean, I, I think the thing that felt brave to me, if there is, if if there is any aspect of this that is brave, the thing that would feel that feels more brave to me is writing it within the culture of, of, of um, the, like kind of the height of, of me too, like immediately post Weinstein where emotions are high, like women are angry. And I really, you know, for good reason. And I had this fear of disappointing feminists I admire. I mean, so writing the book in that way felt a little bit brave because I was, it felt bad what I was doing. Um, but otherwise, writing it certainly was hard at times. Like I found myself swimming laps and then suddenly screaming underwater and realizing, oh, maybe I am angry. But throughout much of the process, it, it felt almost mechanical. Like I was trying to figure out particular craft problems. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Something that meant a lot to me when I was an undergrad and that messed me up a little bit was uh, Yeats's poem, Adam's Curse. I'm just going to read the first stanza. 
We sat together at one summer's end, that beautiful, mild woman, your close friend, and you and I, and talked of poetry. I said, a line will take us hours, maybe. Yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been not. Better go down upon your marrow bones and scrub a kitchen pavement or break stones like an old pauper in all kinds of weather. For to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all these and yet be thought an idler by the noisy set of bankers, schoolmasters, and clergymen the martyrs call the world. And I mentioned that it really messed me up because um, it, it was that, I don't know, it was that writing rule or idea um, where Yates writes, a line will take us hours maybe, yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been not. I mean, Yates is saying in a poem that poetry is hard to write, but when I first read those lines, I completely missed the tension between artifice and authenticity. And that's something that has since like, obsessed me in my work. Um, but at the time I thought, oh, so writing is always supposed to seem effortless. Oh my gosh, that seems so hard. Uh, but, you know, something I, I do and try and resist in my writing is to acknowledge when, when the writing is hard. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Sure. I'm just going to read a short passage. It's actually from The Glass Eye, and it was the origin for things we didn't talk about when I was a girl. Winter break. I was at a party with friends from high school. I remembered what my mom had said about my dad's grief for Jeannie, and that's my dad half-sister I'm named after. Uh, my dad's grief for Jeannie. He drank to forget. I drank to forget. Two friends carried me downstairs to a bed. They tucked me in, then returned to the party. One of the two stayed behind. I've liked you for so long now, he said. I felt my jeans coming off, my underwear coming off. It's just a dream, he said, as I tensed up. It's okay. Everything is going to be okay. I felt his hand between my legs. I've liked you for so long now, he said again. I moved my mind elsewhere, and when I thought he was elsewhere, I opened my eyes. He was standing with his pants and boxers around his ankles, looking down at me. He was no longer touching me, but I knew what he was doing. It's just a dream, he repeated. I lay rigid, holding in tears. I closed my eyes and waited until I heard him finish and stumble away. I remembered my dad saying, if only I were well enough as he clenched his cane. And the part at the, I mean, so much of the, the book was about my grief for my dad. And that last part of remembering my dad saying, if only I were well enough as he clenched his cane, um, it was what I remembered him uh, saying after he learned that a high school teacher had abused me. And I, he was very weak at that point. I mean, he was 80 years old and I, I knew he was responding to feeling guilty that he couldn't um, that I don't know, he couldn't enact revenge, whatever that would look like in my, in my dad's world. But, um, and I remember after this happened, after Mark assaulted me, raped me, I remember thinking, well, at least my dad's not alive to know about this. And that was just such a weird thing to think, um, that I needed to protect my dad 
but I, I think that's a natural reaction for a lot of people that like you need to protect the people in your life. That's why a lot of my students tell me they don't want to tell their parents about sexual assault. So, so this just very short passage ended up really uh, being the, the inspiration for the second book. Where do you write? I have an office at my house. So I mostly write in there. Um, and I have, it's really nice. I, I have a day bed in here. So I tend to like write on there. I, I don't, sometimes I write at my desk, but I really like to write lying down and having books kind of scattered all around me. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? It's hard. Uh, I, teaching writing, it's, it's hard to get away. Um, really just going out with my friends, my writer friends, but we don't talk about writing. We kind of talk about everything else, talk about TV shows. Um, and I sometimes go to the gym, but I, I had to trick myself into going to the gym where I told myself, okay, it'll help me with my writing to turn my brain off and to not be thinking about it. Um, so I find that that helps me like doing something physical or just talking to friends about anything but writing. That's really wonderful. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My editor, Maisie Cochran, she's amazing. I, you know, I, I trust her completely. And so she's, she's definitely the first person um, in most instances who reads my work. How have you dealt with rejection? I mean, now I understand a little bit more being part of the process. When I was starting out as a writer, I remember if um, in my early 20s, if, if a piece was rejected, I thought, okay, well, that was terrible. I can't send that to anywhere else. I don't want to waste anyone's time. And I would just completely take it out of commission and then discovered um, some of my friends had like spreadsheets that tracked where they had submitted particular pieces and where it had been rejected and where it was going next. And I was like, wait, what? Like you send something out after it's been rejected. And I now, I mean, I understand that's normal and it's what you should do as a writer. Um, and so I, I do that. I, I tend not to write shorter things now though. So I, I kind of protect myself, I guess, from rejection. I, I'm, uh, I tend to just work on book length projects now. So I'm not really sending stuff out as much. I'm often grateful if um, a piece is rejected. I remember when I was doing essays and a finesse was rejected. I'd, I'd, I'd be thankful because I thought, okay, well, then they're saving me from publishing something that I'll be embarrassed about later. So I, you know, I try to stay positive. And what is your favorite word? Porch, the word porch. I just, I love how it sounds and the memories it evokes. Like growing up, um, my parents would sit on this aluminum glider on our back porch and they'd tell me stories about their lives and they were just great storytellers. And so just thinking of the word porch, I, I, I think of that. I think of those memories. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Jeannie Venasco, author of the memoir, Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl. If you like today's show, check out my interview with a writer you might also enjoy, Carmen Maria Marchado. You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. 
You can also follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including cuts from the interviews from this month's episode that didn't make it into the final show, and writing tips from my guests. Coming up in the next few episodes are interviews with Ethan Rutherford, Edgar Carrot, and Isabel Allende. A huge thank you goes out to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin, your host and producer. Thank you for listening.